0: Hello world, we're live with JavaScript Air, hello. Uh, So today we're gonna be talking about end-to-end testing. Really looking forward to to that. We have Julie Ralph on to chat about that, but before we get into introductions and everything, I just want to give a shout out to our amazing sponsors. First, our premier sponsor is Egghead.io. The show's, uh, yeah, they're they're just super-duper awesome, and uh, they have a huge library of bite-sized videos all about web development. And so check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and they've got Elm, and CSS, and a bunch of really cool stuff, so check them out. Um, Frontend Masters is a recorded expert-led workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on front-end topics. So check them out. Um, And then TrackJS reports bugs in your JavaScript before customers notice them. And with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And then Wallaby.js is an intelligent and super fast test runner for JavaScript that continuously runs your tests. It reports uh, code coverage and other results directly in your code editor and immediately uh, immediately as you change your code. Check them out at wallabyjs.com. And code cove is coverage, uh, code coverage done right. Reduce technical debt by visualizing test performance and faster code review. CodeCove is highly integrated with GitHub and provides browser extensions. Check them out at CodeCove.io. And actually just uh, set up a new project, uh, open source project this morning and used CodeCove and it was totally seamless. Um, They integrate really well with uh, Travis CI. Uh, So yeah, totally love them. And one other thing about the sponsors is um, if you go to jsair.io slash the sponsor name like egghead.io and Masters, whatever, then uh, that will take you to them. Um, So if you're looking for a quick way to get to these people, um, that's a good way to do it. So another thing, uh, this is a live show and so we're happy to accept your questions on Twitter. And so yeah, feel free to ask your questions with the Twitter hashtag JSRQuestion. And uh, then next week, um, we have a show. This is a weekly show after all. And the show is Ava, Futuristic Test Runner. And Ava is a new-ish testing framework that I'm actually totally falling in love with every day um, for its minimalism, but it's like amazing power and and super fast performance. So uh, we'll be joined next week on the 23rd with uh, the Ava team. So we've kind of got a a testing uh, theme going on right now um, that uh, I think is really awesome. So then finally, Uh, As always, follow us on Twitter and Google Plus and uh, Facebook to keep up with the latest. So, great, with that, that's three minutes. This is starting to get a little bit long. Let me know if that's getting too long. I'll figure out if I can do something about that. Um, Cool, so let's go ahead and introduce everybody um, that we have on the show. So first, uh, uh, for our panelists, we have Brian Lensdorf. Hello. And uh, Getify. Hi, everyone. With his brand new microphone. Uh, and um, Pam Selly. Hello. Awesome, and I'm your host Kent C. Dodds, and for our guest, we have Julie Ralph. Hello, Julie. Hey, everybody. Would you like to give us a quick introduction to yourself, Julie?
1: Sure, Um, so I'm a software engineer at Google. I work in the Seattle office, and for the past few years, I've been working with the Angular team on testing frameworks for Angular, originally focusing on end-to-end testing. I'm the primary author of Protractor, if you've used that, which is a end-to-end testing tool that's created specifically for Angular
2: applications.
0: Sweet, thank you for your work. Um, I've used Protractor myself, and it's really, really great. Um, so I think we definitely want to talk about Protractor uh, because it's an amazing tool, um, but let's talk a little bit about um, end-to-end testing. Um, before we get too far into that. So what is end-to-end testing?
1: Sure, so I think that there's a little bit of confusion around what how we name different types of tests and everybody does it a little bit differently. So I think everyone's pretty clear on unit tests being a sort of one test per file, really low-level test per piece of code. And then above that, um, there's a whole bunch of different names that you could call tests. So I think of end-to-end testing as a test for an entire system or application that you have set up. And in the context of front end, which is what we're usually talking about, because we're here on JavaScript there, that usually means testing an entire website and kind of trying to do it as a user would. So I think of it as a replacement for having someone going through and clicking through your site, running a manual test script, for example. Um, Sometimes this is also called functional testing or or kind of related to user acceptance testing and I think those all kind of mean similar things. Um, Integration testing is also used.
0: Cool, I think that actually having all these different names for these different types of testing can get rather confusing. I just gave a talk at uh, Ignite Fluent um, about all the different types of testing, and obviously not all of them, because there are millions of them. But um, it like can get super overwhelming. Um, and so maybe you could um, talk about like what what's the value of uh, like could it maybe answer the question: Could I just get away with only doing end-to-end testing, um, or is it valuable to do the like? Uh, kind of a a mix of the different forms of testing.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, So I think there's there's trade-offs, and it's gonna depend on exactly what your project needs. But the general advice is, you should have more unit tests than end-to-end tests. The bulk of your testing for the logic of your code should happen in unit tests. And so, okay, that's because unit tests run a lot faster in general, Um, they're smaller. We have a lot of good frameworks that will run unit tests Um, For example, things like Karma that will run tests on save. Um, They're usually well integrated with CI environments, so you can can have those run very easily. Um, And it's easier to debug a unit test. It's easier to run one in isolation. So bulk of logic should generally be tested with unit tests. The reason that you need tests larger than unit tests in any form is because we're really bad at understanding software and how it works together, right? And so if you have a whole bunch of different components that all have really good unit tests, and you throw them together, that doesn't necessarily mean that your entire application is gonna work at all. I'm sure everyone who's who's developed for any amount of time has had a lot of trouble integrating different pieces and making sure that they work together. And you'll have a site that breaks because of some authentication issue that doesn't work because every piece is working together. And so so the value for end-to-end tests that I see is making sure that the major workflows work with everything's together. So unit tests whenever possible, end-to-end tests for making sure that everything does stick together. And then you, you can have lots of different sizes of tests beyond just unit and the whole thing, right? And these are sort of various integration test levels. So for example, if you have a web server and your front end and a couple of different back ends, you could test with a mock web server and just a front end. And whether that makes sense or not really depends on your project and what you're worried about and what you're trying to guard against when you're doing tests. Um, Every additional layer of testing that you introduce introduces complexity into your project. It's something that your developers have to understand how to run, have to understand how to debug, you have to get useful information out of it into your continuous integration probably in some way. So there's definitely a trade-off whenever you add a new type of test. And whenever you add new tests, there's a trade-off of adding time. So, depends on the project.
3: (laughs) How do you define what a unit is?
1: Um, I think a good heuristic is a file, (laughs) which is a little bit vague, but uh, also, you know, if, you, if your file is too big, then you should probably be splitting up your file so your unit's too big. Um, I think some... So some, a simple way of looking at things can be a unit is a function, and you should have kind of one test per function, but I think that's a little bit of a dangerous way of putting things, because then you get developers thinking, like, oh, I've written my one test for my function. We're done. Um, when what you really want to test is, like, every behavior that you're... Class has so I, I think of a unit as a file, a class, kind
0: of. Cool, yeah. I think um, all, all the things that you said about like the value of unit testing and these different levels of testing uh, is really valuable. I think it's really important for people to understand um, like what the different forms of testing, like where they're uh, what trade-offs you're making by doing different forms of, tra- of testing, and then account for those trade-offs when uh, with other forms of testing. And I think the end-to-end testing is kind of like the uh, covers all of the, you know, educate, or the, like, ultimately, everything that you really need to make sure that is, is working and integra- integrating really well together, but, like, that comes with a huge amount of trade-offs, as, like, you know, they're fragile, or they take a long time to run, and these different things, um, so just uh, appreciate your comments on that.
4: Yeah, I think it's, because uh, one thing about end testing, um, or integration tests, or what we choose to call them for now, um, especially if you're touching other services, they do seem to get really brittle. Um, so what do you think that, like what are some of the things people can do to to guard against that? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, um,
1: I think brittle tests and, and flaky tests are a huge problem with end-to-end. And so you mentioned external services. Uh, we try to never have tests touch external services. So if we have to use an external service for some reason, we will mock that out in all levels of tests, basically, because it's just too much of a chance that that something's going to fall over and you'll never be able to trust your tests. Um, For a lot of projects, I think it makes sense to have a test suite that only tests your front end against, like, a mocked-out database, or, or some sort of level of um, I'm just testing my front-end and some simple back-end code that I, that I don't think is going to fall over. There's various frameworks for this that try to do things like uh, recording RPC calls and replaying them, so you, your only back-end is just a really simple server that's replaying things that it's seen before. Um, Can you
4: remind me what you mean by RPC call?
1: So it would listen to like HTTP traffic, for example.
4: Okay, and I just, what does RPC stand for?
1: What does RPC stand for? Uh, oh, I didn't mean to quiz you, I just, I no, thought no, no. it was like, oh, t- just one
3: procedural. of those acronyms.
4: It is remote procedure call. Okay, you. just checking. Because <laughs> anytime we throw acronyms, I like to get them defined.
1: That's yeah, that, that's great, that's one of those ones that I just, like, the acronym means something in my brain, not actually okay, words. Okay, so you're
4: saying, <laughs> so you're
1: saying. Um, so, you so, so basically lots of ways of making, reducing the, the parts in that could fall over because you're testing Mm -hmm. smaller things. Um, I think another thing is if your tests are flaky, maybe your app has some (laughs) flakiness, right? There is some level of bad end-to-end test health can be a signal that maybe your test has some, or that your code in general has some flakiness or too many dependencies or too many moving parts. and we frequently see things like if, if a team is having a lot of trouble writing end-to-end tests, they have a lot of trouble setting up a developer environment for their application, right? So some of this you can't fix at the test level. You have to go in and look at your app and say, does it need to depend on this? Is it a problem that all of our developers are pointing to the same one test database and putting their junk in there and we're getting race conditions because we're running tests all against the same database, right? So larger project code help can have a big impact.
3: So an inverse of the question that I asked, er the question I asked earlier, um, how do you define an end? And I don't mean that to be as facetious as it may sound. Um, I'm actually curious about where we draw these lines, because what you were just saying was, you know well we take these external things for some definition of external stuff that's not ours and we draw a line there and say we're not actually testing that stuff but then the, the obvious question becomes well how do you test the fact that that might fall over so you probably do want some tests where that thing intentionally fails or is unavailable in some way so where exactly do we draw the lines do we do we hand? is it just you know what most people probably conceive like it's just selenium Uh, or, you know, one of those test runners, or is it, like, for example, uh, something that's been on my mind a lot lately is the attention that doesn't seem to be given enough to notions of accessibility, more than just things like, can I use a screen reader, but, like, are you actually saying that we wouldn't draw, you know, where would we draw the line with respect to how the entire user is experiencing it, and then we bring in multiple devices into the question, so now I'm experiencing it very differently on a phone than on a computer. So where do we draw those lines and what, what are your suggestions?
1: Absolutely. Um, so I think there's a couple questions in there. Uh, so um, one was sort of what when do you what do you do when you do have external services? So like say I connect to the Twitter API and I, I don't know if the Twitter API goes down a lot but let's assume that sometimes it does or something. Um, so in my ideal world everyone who exported like some sort of service like that would also have a little reliable mock version that you could run locally that would, that they would maintain and that you could test your API against. Um, I know that's not going to happen, obviously, in every case in the real world. Is
4: there, have you seen anyone with examples of that? Because that does seem like an interesting thing for people who provide third-party APIs to provide a third-party, they, well, they provide a third-party API, so I guess you'd call it a third-party mock.
1: Yeah, um, you know, I don't. It, it's something that we try to do internally at Google. I don't know of any good open source examples, but maybe someone could chime in um, if they if they do know about that. And I'll I'll do some searching afterwards to see because that would be great to have examples of that.
4: Yeah, I think that's a really neat idea.
1: Um, and and so I think teams often end up writing their own for that, right? If you if you have a service that's really important to your project, you would write some sort of mock that has the same. API but is very reliable and you would run your tests against that. Um, You also asked about the sort of the accessibility and what the the user end looks like. So again I think we're mostly talking about front ends here, we're mostly talking about web development. So the obvious end for us is what a user actually sees on their device. And you mentioned Selenium and I think we should probably give a quick definition of what that is for everybody. So there's a project called Selenium, also called WebDriver. Historically, they were two different projects. They've now merged. Uh, In my mind, they mean the same thing now. So Selenium, WebDriver, same terminology. And the goal of Selenium is to give a way for you to write tests that interact with a browser as a user would. So Selenium defines an API where you can click on an element, get the text of an element navigate around different web pages, um, things you would that a user would do in a browser. And there's implementations of this for various browsers. So there's an implementation for Chrome that's called the Chrome driver, implementation for Firefox, which is the Firefox driver, etc. And the implementations to varying degrees attempt to do things as a user would. So it'll send a native event instead of just emulating a JavaScript event. If you want to do a click, for example, um, so Protractor is written on top of WebDriver. Most end-to-end tests, I think it's fair to say, um, that the test web pages use some version of Selenium WebDriver at this point. Um, so, so that's one of our ends is is the emulated user using WebDriver, and I think because we can start up browsers in different configurations, we can do interesting things with Testing, like, will it work on mobile? Will it work on a small screen? Um, There's more that we can do in terms of accessibility, and we've been thinking about this for a while with Projector. Can we have, like, an abstract notion of, instead of saying specifically, click on this button, like, interact with this button? So we could run it in one mode that would be, assume you just click on it, and another mode that would be tab until this element is focused, and then press enter, or, or do something else that would be another way of navigating to that. Um, nothing on that yet, but it is something that we would love to explore at some point.
2: Nice. I, I uh, had some luck at work testing um, React components with their test details simulate on, you know, tabbing and, and enter and stuff like that, and, then, and we actually have a pretty good accessibility test suite built around that. Um, So I think that'd be great for, you know, I love the idea of abstracting an interaction because we have duplicate tests everywhere because of those, but uh, I had a quick question for you, though. Um, Mainly, you know, I think the big argument against end-to-end testing is it's one's too slow, and we say it's brittle, yeah, but I I think the bigger problem is um, it takes, it's about as reliable as you opening up your browser and clicking through at the same speed Every time, and like you know, like computers just hang and stuff, right? So it's hard to. I get false positives all the time. Like Travis, will be like, "Oh, you have to rebuild this one for some reason." Um, so I, I just wanted what you do to offset those two issues, like speed and just reliability, um, because I, I find those the combination uh, discourages this kind of testing, even though it's the strongest.
1: Absolutely. So uh, for the speed problem. Continuous integration kind of helps with this a lot that I, I don't know anyone who tries to run end-to-end tests like on save, for example, because that would just be ridiculously slow. Um, but if you have a five-minute test suite that runs whenever you send a pull request, for example, that, I think that's a pretty reasonable time frame for, for everybody. Um, so if we can have this done automatically at reasonable times, I think that helps to solve the issue. Um, that said I have seen you know three hour test suites and that's pretty oh, much I unacceptable like. <laughs> at any point um, I think a lot of those come from trying to test way too much business logic in your end-to-end tests um, I think if your test suite is unacceptably long that's generally a sign that a lot of that is testing logic that you should be testing in unit tests um, because web pages are slow but three hours is is ridiculous for hitting all of your, you know, just major workflows and pages. Um, another thing that can be done that I think there's not really great support for right now in, um, in Travis, at least. I don't know the, exactly every CI environment out there, but we don't have to run end-to-end tests, like, if documentation changes, right? So if your pull request doesn't touch... Um, kind of dangerous things, we could be smarter about saying, okay, we have a 10-minute test suite, that's a little while. We only want to run it every four hours or something. And if it breaks, we'll go back and bisect whatever happened in the past four hours and try to find something there. If it passes, fine, whatever. Like, we don't have to run everything at every single commit, necessarily. Uh, So end-to-end test can be good for that, too. You could also say, um, we have a suite that we only run before we release. And if it catches something, some poor engineer has to go and, you know, debug for a while, but at least we feel solid about that release. So I think different different models of when you actually run them can be useful as well. Um, you can... So so for tests sometimes being brittle or flaky, you can do reruns that exacerbates the time problem but often fixes the test problem, so say, run it three times, If it passed any of those times, we'll call it good. Um, we, we try to avoid that just because it takes a lot of time and it is susceptible to things just getting increasingly flaky if they're allowed to become that way, so it just kind of gets worse. So one of the things that we try to do with, with frameworks like Protractor is make sure that we're addressing causes of flakiness at the point where they actually come up. But it's hard because sometimes browsers just fall over.
2: Right?
4: I think it's interesting that you bring up the, the time uh, question with end-to-end tests, because that's definitely something I've heard before with people, and end-to-end test and complaints thereof. Um, but also something that I've seen people do, that I'm curious what your comments are uh, or are your ideas about, are that I've seen people take manual scripts and then translate them into their automated test suite, and I feel like that might be one of the ways that a lot of length comes. Um, what do you think about when someone is switching from a, a manual uh, like a, mo- a mostly manual testing uh, testing paradigm to bringing more automated end-to-end testing into their workflow and how they can maybe not uh, some bias here but maybe not repeat you know the exact same thing
1: yeah um, that, that's a hard question because I think I think the way that our industry in general is moving is towards more automated stuff and avoiding Mm -hmm. ever having like a manual test flow that your devs have to run through, you know, before every release. So in general, I'm like, yay, I want, you know, I want more automated (laughs) stuff. I don't want people to have to be going and clicking through test scripts. Um, It's also
4: really confusing to me that they're called scripts. Because yeah. it's, it's taken me a long time to figure out that test engineers often are people who click on buttons. You know, their jobs are yeah. super valuable, but, like, that's really confusing that it's called a script and it's not run by a computer.
1: And maybe we should clarify that for everyone. What, that often just means, like, a, a doc that's, like, yes. it's usually go a this page, click on task. this button,
4: like, yeah. a bullet point Yeah, a test list. script is a list of tasks of, you know, open this URL, click on this button, and da 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 and... Um, sometimes done by by you know offshore teams or things like that. Um, so it's not even engineers uh, doing the running through it and then rep- then they report, you know, they report a failure <laughs> when yeah. something fails the test script. yeah.
1: Um, so I think that a lot of those scripts may be too restrictive, right? that if if you're translating those to automation and they still take a long time, um, maybe it would be good to go look at that script and and say, do we need to be testing these five different inputs for this box? Or is that a test case that's covered already? Yeah, I like in our the way you
4: tests. put it about um, thinking about when you're test when you're exercising your application or when you're testing your business logic, and that these things are probably not the same.
1: Yeah. And I think a good question to ask is why am I what what am I worried about catching with this test? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and Humans, obviously, are pretty bad at saying, like, oh, this could never break. (laughs) I know, I definitely said that, and it broke. But but there is some things that you can think of, like, no, this would be caught in my unit tests if that were a problem. Um, I only need to go through this form with one set of input, not 50, because the others are tested somewhere else.
3: So, um, with respect to... uh, I'm I'm still, in my mind, kind of trying to push uh, on the boundaries of of where these things are and how we effectively do it. So in my mind, I'm I'm starting to wonder, <clears throat> of course there are lots of tools out there for benchmarking performance, for example. Um, but I'm curious about, from an end-to-end testing perspective, what you think is effective and or maybe out of scope for testing. And I don't just mean the simple stuff like how fast your page loads, but I mean more more along the lines of the mindsets on like offline first development like for example flaky internet like in, uh, so you're saying you've been talking so far about trying to re- you know test to remove those sorts of problems. I'm sort of going the opposite direction and saying testing assuming that that is going to happen that people's connectivity is going to you know be flaky and it's been said that there's the only thing worse than no connectivity is flaky connectivity from a user experience perspective so um, I don't know currently whether tools support this but do you think that's within scope of the things that we should be end-to-end testing or intentionally uh, spiking the CPU to 100 percent or intentionally killing the network connection down to a super slow speed or dropping packets or or other sorts of things like that because I know there's plenty of separate tools that do that but it's part of end-to-end testing do you think we should be doing that? Yeah I think
1: that's a good idea I think in, in my mind, that's kind of similar to I have one test that I would like to run on desktop and mobile, and it should behave kind of the same way. Um, that's similar to saying I have a test that I should run on high internet speed and on a simulated super flaky um, speed. And if your app should perform in decently the same way, I, I think that's a totally reasonable test to run. Um, there is just thinking about benchmarking and performance, uh, WebDriver itself is, introduces a lot of latency, and this is one of the reasons that things are slow, because it's sending HTTP calls for every command that it does. So you know, whenever you're checking an element text or looking to see if an element exists, there's some latency there due to a call. So it's a pretty poor framework for doing really low-level timing stuff, um, and, and overall that's going to introduce latency for, for how your entire test suite is. So generally I don't like doing precise timing uh, benchmarks with WebDriver. Um, that said, the Angular team uses WebDriver in uh, in conjunction with some just browser-based tests. It just uses WebDriver to like go in, click the button, and then they run very precise benchmarks within the browser and report them back, and that works great, So, um, but, but actually using Every web driver call, not great right for benchmarking.
3: It sounds so, like... Uh, uh, I, was, I was just gonna go follow ahead. on to that and say, the, the last question along that same line of thinking is, what about um, multiple users um, in context where the user behavior of, of somebody else affects my behavior? So I'm thinking of things like the interactivity in Google Docs, or online gaming, or things like that, where you could just sort of pretend to simulate it, but um, simulating another person's behavior, like a person that's trying to be a jerk and they keep deleting every key that you type into a Google Doc, for example. It's not something we would think of, but is that, is that an end that we should be testing, and what are ways that we can do that?
1: Um, yeah, I think, so, so in, in Protractor's test suite, we actually have a test case for a really simple chat app that we made where we open up two different instances of WebDriver and actually have two different browsers talking to the same backend application. Um, I think that's great. I don't think a lot of teams do that in practice just because it's a little bit more work to set up. Um, But yeah, we have an example. Uh, I can add a link to that um, in the notes.
0: Cool, yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, work yet to be done to cover some of the types of uh, testing that Kyle's talking about. Um, But I think that those kinds of testing would be really valuable uh, for some applications in particular. So, um, yeah, lots of room for anybody who's listening who wants to participate in this movement of end-to-end testing. Um, lots of contributions, I'm sure, uh, we could use. So, um, we actually got a, a question from Twitter that I think is really applicable uh, right now. So, if anybody else watching has questions, it's jsr question hashtag on Twitter. Um, but this is actually from a, a previous guest. Um, Ilya uh, Voloden and his question is, a lot of wrappers around Selenium, Protractor, Casper.js, Nightwatch, WebDriver.io, Intern, etc. and he's asking for recommendations, and so I think this would be a good segue into uh, Protractor, uh, but if you could uh, just mention the others if you're familiar with those, that'd be awesome too.
1: Sure. Um, I'm kind of biased here because I'm the primary author of Projector, so I think you should use that. <laughs> um, but so, so in general, um, we talk about WebDriver Selenium from the, the browser perspective. Uh, then obviously you have to write a test for it. And at the end of the day, every test that's a WebDriver test is just some sort of wrappers around sending a series of HTTP calls that are part of the WebDriver protocol. Um, And there's a whole lot of different libraries and bindings for doing this. Most Selenium tests, I think, are written in Java, currently, in the world. Um, That's sort of the the primary backend language for a lot of these web servers. It's been around the longest and it's the best supported. Um, But we don't want front-end developers who are writing tests to have to switch over to writing Java for their end-to-end tests because I don't think that makes sense for them. (laughs) Um, So that's why, uh, for example, ProDirector is written in JavaScript and run using Node.js. So an important thing to realize in general is that your test code for end-to-end tests that are using WebDriver is not run in the same JavaScript environment as the browser. This is something that confuses people a lot and it's not related to the question, but I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> um, because it's super, super important to understand that this is a node program that is not your actual server. Um, but back to the various wrappers. I think that there's, there's a lot of difficulties with making something asynchronous easy to read. And this is one of the big problems that we struggle with a lot in Protractor. And other wrappers like WebdriverIO. or I.O., have different ways of solving this. I'm not familiar with exactly all of the ones that were listed. um, But the the main problem is we're sending HTTP calls for every request. Everything that you do to interact with a page is an asynchronous call in some way. So you could deal with this by having a huge chain of callbacks in your test. You could deal with this by having a huge chain of promises. The way that Protractor, does, which is built on top of the official Selenium WebDriver JavaScript bindings, is it kind of simulates a test that looks synchronous by storing commands on a queue, which is called the control flow, and then popping them off. This works pretty well as long as you're not trying to do a lot of test logic and then you have to understand that these things that look synchronous are actually not synchronous. I think that's fine for most tests because you really shouldn't be doing a lot of complex logic in your tests in general. So uh, it's it's a challenge. I think different frameworks deal with it in different ways. I think you should write tests in whatever you like and feel comfortable in. The other big thing about Protractor is that it's specialized for Angular applications. So we take advantage of the fact that if a site is in Angular, we know a whole lot about the web page. And we've written into Angular helpers that'll tell us, for example, when rendering is done and timeouts are done and HTTP requests are done. And so we can ask Angular when that's finished and help reduce flakiness. A lot of flakiness in web tests comes from, like, you'll click a button which will start some process, and then you look for a div to appear. And that div hasn't appeared yet because the button click is still being processed in some way. And so you can solve this by doing things like waiting for a couple seconds, which is not a great solution. You can pull and see if the button exists, which is what a lot of frameworks end up doing. But Protractor can, instead of doing all that, say, hey, Angular, just let me know when when everything's done. And so that helps reduce flakiness a lot. So uh, if you're using Angular, I would highly recommend using Protractor. Uh,
2: I should chime in and say, too, that Casper is, is highly specialized to just, like, Phantom or Slimer, and we had to... Actually, undo all our Casper tests to actually work with Sauce Labs or Browser Stack or something that needs to hook into Selenium, which is was depressing. But uh, you know, some protractor would probably
3: also help alleviate with the. Uh, so, people should know that. So, because the word async was mentioned, it's kind of like a bat signal in the sky. I have to swoop in and talk about this for just a moment. I think the pain points that you're suggesting around creating readable tests are incredibly important. I've had personal experience specifically with that. As a, <clears throat> as a matter of fact, the first time I really saw the pain point of testing was the pain point around asynchronous testing, and this is going on probably more than five years ago now, but I was working in the developer tools team at Firefox, as I've shared before, and. Uh, Every single thing you do, from drawing a button to putting a border around the pop up frame and everything else, every single step is asynchronous. Most of them don't have events to let you know they're done. So you literally are just doing timeout after timeout after timeout to know that everything that you drew drew in the right order and that the shadow is on top of everything else and that sort of craziness. And the tests are significantly more complex than the code to do the work and they are almost impenetrable to read, which means they're not useful, if a test isn't useful, I mean if a test isn't readable, it's not useful because it'll get replaced at some point or it won't do its job. But those pain points are exactly the same as for actual developer code. So the solutions that we use or that I advocate for using in developer code are exactly the same pain points and solutions I'd advocate in testing. And I had a coworker at the time tell me uh, you know we we're working in Firefox so they had early versions of stuff long before it landed in the spec and they said oh you should just use a generator for your tests and I was like uh, what and I learned about it and I realized way back then that uh, creating synchronous looking asynchronous code is the way to create more readable code it worked well super well for the tests, and I've been a a fan of that ever since so generators uh, the newer async functions that most people read about those are ways to uh, uh, to approximate synchronous looking code that under the covers can be asynchronous if it needs to. It's not that the logic doesn't get handled, but it's that the part that you're reading is directly related to the flow control logic and not to the implementation details. Uh, so I would just advocate that for all code It's especially true in tests.
1: Absolutely, we're really excited about async and await coming in to JavaScript eventually. And we have done some experimentation with generators, as you mentioned. The um, the underlying WebDriver JavaScript findings have some support for that, that we would like to surface um, sooner rather than later. So ask me in a while.
0: <laughs> well, um, I think that we're, well, we, we actually do still have a little bit more time. Um, if there was anything that you wanted to uh, go into a little further, I, I did have um, one question, or actually two questions that are kind of a little bit more broad. Um, so actually no, this one's a little bit more specific. So some people advocate for um, having the engineers who are writing the code to write the tests as well. Um, I personally think that's a, that's a really good approach, but other companies have uh, QA teams. And especially with respect to end-to-end testing where it kind of covers the entire application, it's not like one single, you know, or, or one team's Code that's being tested, like it's actually a, a group, several teams' code being tested. So, um, like, w- what what are your thoughts on this? Uh, on like the idea of engineers being the one writing the tests, or, or having QA teams write uh, end-to-end tests?
1: Um, I would love everyone's thoughts on this because I think there's a lot going on right now. Um, companies are kind of changing their um, they're thinking about this a bit. So the way that we do this at Google, which I I like in general, is There's a a job title, which is a software engineer in tools and infrastructure. That's what I am. Um, And our job is to set up frameworks, help with tooling for engineering productivity in general. Um, So a lot of software engineers in tools and infrastructure would be embedded on one team, and they would do things like help set up their unit testing, code of health, release, and end-to-end test frameworks. But engineers write their own end-to-end tests. So they have someone who knows the framework really well, who can help set up examples. They have you know, mailing lists that they can go to with help. But at the end of the day, the developers are responsible for writing their own tests. And I are think there, that that's a really good model.
3: Are there tools that can like record that stuff? Like I can just like click, 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 and it knows that I did that and now that's a test case?
1: You know, right. um, there's been a lot of people who've done tools like that. Um, I have yet to see one that's Really well polished and has stuck around for a couple of years. Um, someone should do that, but it there's a lot of difficulty with it, um, and there's there's always just been too many problems and, and weird little cases that keep it from really being the main way that people write tests.
2: I think sure. it's it's like the same problem with the fitness test, like DSL cucumber kind of like I'm a business guy writing this this thing, and 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 that's just gonna work out if I use the right language and and it never seems to work out. And I think the developer, like you said, putting the uh, power to test the behavior in the developer's hands is a smart move because the developer, you know, whoever they are, will will know, you know, exactly what code they've written and and how this will cover that rather than...
1: Yeah, um, a problem that you often get with things that try to record clicks and stuff is they don't know when they're being too specific. Um, And so... You, it'll be really brittle because if your button moves, <laughs> it'll, you know, freak out. When when a developer knows, you're supposed to click the button that has this ID, and, and that will be pretty constant and pretty stable. Um, so, so, yeah, I, I think uh, developers should write their own tests. Um, if a test is a, a general test for the whole tool, you know, the, the tech lead or whoever is sort of in charge of the whole tool should understand that and be able to write that test.
0: So, just really quickly, going back to the the tools that you know kind of generate tests just you click around it creates a test um, there are a couple of tools, and i'll I'll actually pick one at at the end but uh, uh it I, I think that those tools have a a good place um for like really really simple workflows um and I actually use one for the javascript air website uh just to make sure that like, because it's automatically deployed. Anytime something gets into master, it goes out. And so, like, right after that build, like, it automatically runs this really, really simple test. Like, I can click on an episode, and the episode title is the same. Like, just super su- simple. And it's actually really valuable to, uh, to have that. You know, because like, I don't have a million hours, and so um, being able to make something really simple like that, I, I think, is valuable. Um, and there's another tool uh, that I'm not going to pick, but it's uh, called Functionize. Uh, that I just learned about at Fluent Conf. It's kind of interesting, and it, uh, basically it turns what your users are doing into tests. And so it records your users' actions, and then you can take your users' actions, and like obviously you can filter out password stuff and like sentiment data, but it'll, it'll take those actions and, and you can turn those actions into tests. I've tried to make this, or test this out, but it hasn't really been working out so well. That's why I'm not actually picking it. But I think it's just an interesting idea. That's cool.
1: I should also mention really quickly, um, for Protractor, we have an amazing contributor and fellow Googler named Andres who has written a thing called Elementor, which is not quite a a click and replay, but instead it'll let you interactively test out commands for finding elements. And it will make suggestions from a Chrome extension for how you might find an element in your test based on where you click in the app. Um, And it's super useful. it's kind of a middle ground that will help you write the tests without um, actually trying to do it all itself.
4: Um, on the topic of, of developers writing their own tests, I think it's, we kind of have, it sounds like a little bit of a consensus here that we're kind of all on that side of engineers should write the test for the code they write. Um, but I do think that something is interesting um, so then the question becomes for me like well why what situations do we get in in which that is not what happens and why um, like Brian kind of mentioned the there's kind of the perception of some some tools make testing look so easy that it um, it becomes not a developer's job um, but I think it's also really interesting like the kind of I just kind of a topic comment the team that you work on that you have people. One of the ways you can encourage engineers to write their own tests is having dedicated people to make it easy for them to write tests. I think that's a really interesting idea. I don't know if anyone wanted to talk about that.
1: I think a good question is also writing tests is easier than debugging tests, right? So who's going to debug the tests is a good thing to think about.
2: (laughs) I should say as a developer, I have a really hard time writing tests that I know are going to be like outside of the scope of the stuff I've actually handled. And somebody else doing that is going to help a lot more than me being like, no, it works fine.
1: <laughs> and for end-to-end tests, it's, so so. we talk about developers writing their own tests, and for end-to-end tests, that usually means the front-end devs are writing tests for features that they use. But of course, that touches the back-end, right? Mm. So, so there's also, the team has to figure out how that collaboration works. Um, and maybe that means that the backend team also understands how to debug the tests, so if they do something that breaks it, they can fix it instead of the front-end engineer having to like walk over and bother somebody. Um, or maybe that means that that you are mocking more things out in your front-end tests.
0: I think that's just kind of the curse of being a front-end developer: um, is that like if something's broken, you're the first one that anybody comes to, and like I really don't know a way around that. Like I. I just think that's just the way that it is because, you know, like it could be something in the front end or it could be like some way that we're integrating with the back end wrong, but we're the ones who can find out whether we're sending the right data or like whatever it is. So like I honestly I don't like it. I sometimes I, I just really hate that I have to be the one that to look at these problems, especially if I have a really flaky back end. But um, I, I can't see a way around that.
3: Um, so, I, the comment that I would like to make is actually a pretty good segue from this. Um, uh, so, what's interesting, and this is, a, this is a known problem, and I don't think it'll ever be solved, but what's interesting is that engineers testing, or engineers writing tests, are simultaneously the best people to write the tests and the worst people to write the tests. Uh, we're the best because we can think logically about the corner cases that, other pe- that might not occur to other people, but we're also the worst because we make assumptions and have biases that give us blind spots to stuff um, that other people don't have blind spots to, which is why there's a whole class of testing that you could refer to as randomized testing or chaos testing. Um, and that was where my last question was going to lie is so, you know, there's tools like, for example, QuickCheck. Um, which isn't really a JavaScript-related tool, but it's kind of magical. Uh, Brian, I know, as a functional programmer, loves that. It's kind of magical that it starts out by doing randomized testing to find a failure case, but the real magic is then it uses mathematical properties to reduce to a minimal reproducible test case for that bug. It's kind of, like, mind-blowing to see it happen. But I'm just, even if we didn't talk about that second magical part, I'm kind of curious about the first part. Are there tools to help create chaos in our tests where it's not designed to follow a very carefully prescribed script, but rather to do stupid stuff that nobody would ever think of doing, like clicking on two buttons at exactly the same moment or anything weird like that. Like, uh, are there tools for, for that? Because that will find, that absolutely will find bugs that we never thought of testing for.
1: Yeah, I definitely know teams that have used that. Um, I don't actually know if those tools were open source or not, so I can check on that and add links if they are. But um, there are definitely, I've heard monkey testing used as a phrase for this a lot, that basically just interacts with elements until you get a 500 error and (laughs) then replays what you did to make that happen. Um, So yeah, definitely seen that done.
2: I think, you know what I think is really interesting, you touched on it in the beginning, is that like, if, if you have all these different test cases and you treat them like properties, like whenever the browser is in screen reader mode, I expect this. Whenever the latency is this much, I expect that. And it basically can fuzz the known um, environment you know, quirks and then um, you know, assert properties hold during those. So that's an interesting place to go, I think.
0: Sweet, um, I think that this has been a really awesome show. Uh, we've, we've covered more than just end-to-end testing and I, I think that's a good thing. Um, so hopefully this is um, this has been helpful to the people watching um, and listening later. So if there's nothing else, I, I think we should probably start thinking about wrapping up. We might have time for one more uh, quick question I wanted to ask uh, that would be a little bit more practical for people watching and that is, um, if you had just a couple of pro tips about writing end-to-end tests and like things, things that uh, you should do when when uh, or and think about when writing end-to-end tests, what what would some of those pro tips be?
1: I think the first thing would be to carefully pick your tests, which I think we've we've co- covered a couple times here. But um, pick a you know big workflows that the user would go through. Um, user stories might be a good way to say that. That you don't want to ever break things that'll be fairly stable, and would be really bad if it broke. Try to keep your end-to-end tests to a limited number that will run decently quickly, um, and make sure that you think about the potential sources of flakes. So if you're using Angular, use a framework like Protractor that can help with that. If you're not, make sure that you have intelligent ways of waiting for your page to be ready, waiting for elements to appear, etc. cetera. Um, only use something like sleep for five seconds as a last resort, <laughs> if there's no better way of figuring that out. Um, and uh, make sure that you do everything you can to make sure that your tests are debuggable. So whether that's having video or screenshot, um, WebDriver has good screenshotting capabilities, um, making sure that you're exposing logs from your backend, your front end, making sure that those are searchable and that your engineers know when the test breaks, how they can go about figuring out where something actually went wrong. Because I think one of the most frustrating things that gives end-to-end tests a bad rap is, Travis failed, and all they see is it timed out on the end-to-end tests, and then they have to go find 50 people to yell at before someone understands how to actually debug it.
0: Or they'll just like rerun it again, and like, maybe it'll <laughs> work, and, and then it does, and then you've got a flaky test in there somewhere, you have no idea where it is.
2: Mm-hmm. I have a quick simple pro tip, if, if you're like a lot of people and you're using Karma and Mocha, um, you know, with the Chrome extension or Phantom or something, I, I put on Chrome and then I uh, set the Mocha timeout to like 20 seconds and I make it sleep, so I can actually watch the browser be launched and it just sit there and wait for the timeout. So I can actually see what's on the screen, what's actually happening, open up the console, it's a, it's a really good way to just, like, debug if you're writing a test.
0: Sweet, thanks. All right, um, so we don't have any other questions on Twitter, so we'll just go right into our tips and picks, um, and we'll let Julie go last. Um, and so, yeah, let's go with Brian first. What do you have for us, Brian?
2: Uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> I guess that one tip was the one I just gave. I'll write it down, but yeah, set your Mocha timeout um, really high and make it pause for a bit to check it out. Um, and I just want to shout-out to Shape Security's tools. They're amazing. Um, you should really check out um, the uh, suite that they the Shift uh, suite they've provided. Um, we've been using Bodil Stokey's uh, parser combinator library to uh, parse SAS at work, and it's been extremely effective and crazy easy to use, and, and made really beautiful code, as opposed to, like, regexes and other things. So just uh, m- links, those are my picks. Those are really great.
0: Cool, thank you. Um, let's see, Getify, why don't we have you go next?
3: All right, so um, one tip that's totally non-dev related just for a moment, but because I'm loving this. Um, I have an app on my phone called Truecaller. I tweeted about this earlier this morning and a bunch of people like chimed in on it, but it just pops up and tells me um, not just who the person is, but whether or not that person has been reported as spam before by other users of the app and this to me is like a killer feature that I don't know why we haven't had for like a dozen years. I love this thing and could not use a phone anymore without it, especially uh, in this political season where there's all kinds of ridiculous uh, spam calls going out. So I love the True TrueColor app. Uh, I couldn't use my phone without it. My other tip um, is going to sound a little bit of a joke, but it's kind of halfway joke, halfway true. Go right now and reserve whatever your NPM username is as a package name. Uh, also on NPM, just so that somebody else doesn't do it. I just found out today that those are separate. I thought your username was kind of already reserved and they're not. And that flows into my my first pick, which is we need to get this trending on NPM. Kent C. Dodds has a Kent C. Dodds package on NPM. It's the most amazing piece of code ever written and we should all go and add this dependency to all of our programs uh, so that we can get that thing trending on NPM. Uh, as a side note, I discovered all of this because there is a Getify NPM package, which is unfortunately, sad face, not mine, um, and it's been creating some confusion for people who think that it is and it isn't. Uh, so don't let that happen to you. Go get your uh, your username as a package name. Okay, so in all seriousness, one actually serious pick is uh, a tool called, I guess it's pronounced HackTar, Haktor, something like that. Um, I have not used the tool, but I read through the documentation, read through some of the tests, and I was impressed. Um, So I'm not one that actually likes to use a lot of tool sets. I kind of try to have as few tools in my build process as possible. Um, So it seems maybe strange that I would pick a tool which actually adds lots of them to your script. But what I like about HackTar is that it does it for you. It automatically figures out that you've just written some code in a file that needs babble and it just gets it and puts it in for you so you're not actually being hampered by that process it's kind of a tool that tries to make itself invisible is their self-description I think that's a really interesting way of making not just a tool but a smarter tool and that's what I advocate a lot for so big ups to Hacktar hopefully we maybe see more cool stuff like that
0: very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And actually, the C. Dots package was inspired by the getify package. I I think you tweeted about it, or somebody tweeted about it, and I was like, oh my gosh, I need to make sure that I grab mine real quick. Um, so yeah, <laughs> I've got real big aspirations for 2.0. I'm just saying. <laughs> awesome. Um, Pam, why don't we have you you go next?
4: I'm I'm sorry that that happened to you. That actually, uh, Kyle, that reminds me of um. I'll drop a link for it, but when Peach, the social network came out, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the show, but there is a package that allows you to reserve your Peach username because they came out for iOS first, which now I want this to happen every time an iOS thing comes out and it doesn't come to Android so I can go squat on my name uh, so that it's just I'm I'm kind of upset that this is like a thing that we have to, like, always be on top of, like, just in case the social network ever matters, <laughs> we, you know, or, like, someone ever tries to impersonate you on the internet, um, you need to go and get your name. Um, so, but besides, you know, the terrifying topic of other people impersonating you on the internet, um, my pick (laughs) is reading. So um, reading specifically non-technical things. Um, I've been kind of taking a little bit of a a break from diving into super technical things and just have been reading a lot of interesting books. And um, probably the best one I've read recently is uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning, so other people think it's good too, uh, All the Light We Cannot See. Uh, so it's really fantastic uh, so I recommend reading that um, but of course uh, I also recently read Amanda Palmer's book um, but so if I my pick this week is to to take a break and read some read some good books
0: great pick um, I'll go next and then uh, we'll go with Julie so. Um, first, my t- uh, tip is to investigate and use all forms of testing in the way that they are needed. I think um, there's a time and a place for end-to-end testing and fuzz testing or chaos testing or monkey testing or whatever. And uh, there's a place for unit testing. And like Julie said, you should probably have a lot more unit tests than you have um, end-to-end tests. And uh, integration testing as well, and that's, um, that is different, although that, the line between those two can be fuzzy sometimes. So, um, anyway, for my picks, how to contribute to an open source project on GitHub. I actually can't believe I haven't picked this yet <laughs> because I was super excited when it first got released. But it's a, it's a series that I created, it's totally free, so if you want to get involved in contributing to open source and you just don't know how, um, or or you don't know what project to contribute to, or whatever, um, check out that series. I, I go through everything as basic as setting up a GitHub account and, and like setting up your git that's installed on your machine, all the way up to like creating a PR, um, squashing commits into a single commit, like a whole bunch of stuff. So uh, yeah, I'm, I, that uh, series has done a lot of good for a lot of people and I'm excited about that. And then also I'm picking Ghost Inspector. That's the tool that I use um, every time Travis deploys uh, javascriptair.com. It will verify that you can click on an episode and it will take you to the episodes page. Um, so it's like really, really simple. I could probably write some more tests, but it's kind of like uh, just a, a sanity check to make sure that stuff didn't totally get borked. So it's nice to have. Um, and, it's, and it is totally free for um, my use case, so it's great. Okay, uh, Julie. Well,
1: cool. um, so first uh, tip is for Projector. Um, Andres and Carmen have written a style guide, which is finally on our website. Um, So go check that out. Uh, I think it has good tips for end-to-end testing in general, like reducing test logic, um, and specifically for Protractor. Um, So that's really great. I would love to see people reading that. Um, And then my picks is GitHub's kind of been on fire with their blog lately, Um, so I'm very excited about emoji reactions to issues because no one likes getting emails that say plus one. Um, and they just drown stuff out, so I'm really happy that that's finally here. And they also just introduced a bunch of new tools for doing uh, reviews of pull requests that let you look at pull requests by commit. Uh, it works really well for our workflows, um, so I'm excited about those. And in line with what Kent was talking about, they also, the I think one of the latest posts was how to close issues for maintainers of GitHub repositories, which is something that I try to be good about, um, meaning you know, if, if something isn't in scope, just close things, don't let them linger. I think this is important for anyone who owns or maintains a repository to think about, so um, GitHub's doing some awesome stuff. I'm excited.
0: Cool. Awesome. All right, uh, so with that, we're gonna wrap the show up, so um, let me just... Uh, give a quick shout out to our silver sponsors, O'Reilly Flu- uh, Fluent Conf, Auth0, and Trading Technologies. Woohoo, new silver sponsor. Um, so they will be on the website um, shortly and uh, on the um, in the show notes, so you can find links to each one of these sponsors and learn more about them. Um, and then as always, we appreciate uh, your suggestions for shows and topics, so go to suggest.javascriptair.com. And then feedback is really appreciated, uh, so feedback.javascriptair.com. Um, That takes you to a form and I get notified whenever you submit feedback. So definitely, um, I am listening. Um, And then, uh, make sure to uh, tune in next week, same time, same place. uh, We're going to be talking about the Ava test runner. um, And yeah, we'll be with the Ava team. Uh, This is a super awesome um, uh, unit test runner that I totally love for JavaScript, and then follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus to keep up with the latest, and with that, I think we can say goodbye. So thanks, oh wait, wait, one other thing. So I just had a meeting with uh, Jen Turner uh, yesterday, and she's going to be helping us with our newsletter, and so if you would like to be on that newsletter, uh, go to uh, jsairio slash email, and you can fill out a Google form. So we'll have something more official uh, later when the newsletter is actually going, But um, the newsletter is basically just going to be like the show notes, the links, picks, and tips. It'll probably come out a couple days after the show. Um, and so yeah, it's just a great way to, to keep up with the show. Um, I'm hoping to build a community around this show um, of people who can like have similar interests and can talk uh, about the topics that we have. So yeah, just trying to serve the community here. So anyway, uh, that's it. So thanks everybody for coming, and uh, we'll see you all next week. Goodbye. Uh, That was great.